the children we take care of are the reason we're, we do pediatric neurosurgery. The pathology we, we treat, mostly congenital, uh, and the opportunity to make a difference in a life that is just beginning is profound. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. Uh, I'm very honored today to be joined by uh, John Ragib. John Ragib is the Director of Pediatric Neurosurgery here at the University of Miami, uh, Nicholas Children's Hospital, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, John is uh, has been leading the group for now uh, over a decade and is uh, world-renowned in this field. John, you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thanks, Mike. Uh, John Ragib here, uh, a pediatric neurosurgeon at the University of Miami and at uh, Nicholas Children's Hospital. Uh, Happy to be here and talk to you about pediatric neurosurgery and what makes those of us who do pediatric neurosurgery tick. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And, and I've wanted to do this for a while because, uh, you know, <laughs> peds is a very, I think it's a very distinct subset of neurosurgery and maybe stands apart. I, I know for many, many years, peds was the only uh, subspecialty of neurosurgery that required a distinct fellowship after residency. And there was a whole process and a different organization that handled that. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So the, you know, the history of pediatric neurosurgery is one in which it, it was an integral part of general neurosurgery. I mean, I think the first pediatric neurosurgeons were Cushing and, um, and Dandy. Uh, but having said that, as the, as the field has evolved over the years, uh, pediatric neurosurgery has, um, has diverged from the pathology managed by most general neurosurgeons. And most of what we take care of is congenital stuff in, in, sometimes very small children. Uh, so it is true that there was a, was a separate board for pediatric neurosurgery created in the mid-1990s. The pediatric board and the adult board have merged as they've seen the value of integrating that into the training of every neurosurgery resident, as well as the certification process. So we now have a merged board again, but pediatric neurosurgery is distinct from what from adult neurosurgery in many ways. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people know that. I mean, I, I lived through an era when all the fellowships proliferated and PEDS certainly stood apart. And I, I would add also that there are some very famous pediatric neurosurgeons, I think like Ben Carson, for example, who's now director of HUD, right? Uh, and there's something very much that captures the imagination about the, the excitement and danger of neurosurgery and then add to that children, right? Little kids, little babies and adolescents, there's something much more emotionally riveting about that, right? I, I think you could, there, there, there are many things that distinguish pediatric neurosurgery from general neurosurgery and the ego of the pediatric neurosurgeons is not one of them. Uh, <laughs> no, don't, don't. We're, not, we're not unique in that department, I don't think. But I think um, you mean that your your egos are just as big as ours. Uh, hard to believe, but it is true. Even though we take care of little people, I think one of the things that distinguish pediatric neurosurgery uh, and people who go into pediatric neurosurgery is their desire to work with families and uh, and children. I, I think um, that takes a special person. Uh, for those of us who have children, uh, and I I know that's true for you and me. You know, it's hard to see your own child sick. And it, not everybody who can tolerate that pressure of working with a sick child and their, and their parents to help them through a disease. Many people who come on my service, many of the residents that have been on my service say, Dr. Ragab, I love what you do, but I can't deal with the pain of a sick child and a parent. I, I get that. 
Yeah, you've got like three patients. You've got a mother, father, and a child. Absolutely. As opposed to one patient like for me, right, in spine. Yeah, and I think they all take up the equal amount of your time, if not more with the parents uh, than the child. Yeah, So, but let's go back to this ego issue because all the peds, guys I've encountered, so I train under Gordon McComb and Mike Levy at USC, and they are very different. I mean, like, for example, one example is rounding. Like, they always showed up to round at 6.30 in the morning. Everybody was together as a team. We went around. Nobody yelled at nurses. It was so different. And you go to the university hospital or county, and it's like a whole, it's like a, it's like a grab bag, right? I mean, there was a certain level of discipline and rigor that was different, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, I think there is some truth to that. We, we have the same tradition here at the, uh, at the University of Miami. Our, our, our team starts around at 6.15 every morning. We all uh, meet and go over scans and then see the patients together. There is occasionally a raised voice if the pediatricians don't take good care of our patients overnight or they don't call us about an ICU change, but it's true. Um, they are, uh, you have to deal with the, the family, um, the sick child, the, the extended family, and then the pediatricians who are a unique breed in and of themselves. You have to recognize when you're working in a children's hospital, it isn't like the county hospital or a general facility. The level of concern uh, and oversight that the nurses insist on putting on, upon us medical providers is significant. <laughs> and if you don't, if you don't embrace that and and go with it, you're you're gonna you're gonna get yourself in trouble with the pediatricians. Yeah, I remember that. Like I was I, at CHLA Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. I would come in a pre-round, and I'd be there at like four thirty in the morning trying to go do an exam on the patients, and the nurses would physically block the door. They'd be there with their arms, like like a security <laughs> guard saying, no, you will not wake up this child. Right. And in retrospect, I see their rational. Of course, I was just trying to do my job. I'm like, I got a pre-round, get data, right? Yep, 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 of course. And you know that, that nurse probably just spent uh, several hours along with the mother trying to get that baby to go to sleep. And you're there to take care of the child. And unfortunately, you know, we surgeons keep different hours than pediatricians, but it's those conflicting interests, which makes it hard for us surgical specialists to work at a children's hospital um, because they're not used to us. We, we are surgeons uh, and they're pediatricians. Yeah, yeah, that would happen too. Like around 10.30 or 11, they would have finished their rounds and you're in the OR in the middle of a case and your pager, we used pagers back then, would just explode yes. with all their, their, their to-do list, their scut listings <laughs> are coming back to you now. Nothing's and it's changed. Like, We've been here for six hours. What is that? Yeah, nothing's changed. Nothing's and, changed. Okay. And then, and then they'll, and you'll get the, the, the first year resident, the third year resident and the fellow all calling you about the same issue. Yeah. Because none, they don't <laughs> right. trust each other to get the answer for it. But, None of that's changed in a children's hospital. I think you have to provide a different level of communication as well if you're going to fit in on a pediatric neurosurgery service. I think those aren't the things that distinguish us most. I think the things that distinguish us most is the pathology we manage. I mean, granted, we, you know, everybody's sensitive to the family and to their patient. We all have to take the, our, our, our patient and their family into consideration. But the pathology we manage is distinctly different in pediatric neurosurgery. It's primarily congenital pathology which I think makes it fascinating for those who are interested in the developing human and the developing nervous system. It makes for a very unique practice on a daily basis. Yeah, you just gave us a great talk about hemispherectomy, which to me like is one of those things when, when you're starting in neurosurgery, and probably not just starting, but later on, like really captures the imagination of the, of the true pushing of the envelope of what we're doing with the brain, right? Taking out massive parts of the brain, right? To try to stop these crippling seizures, right? And, and so tell us more about like how the pathology or practice differs from, say, me as a spine surgeon or even a generalist. Yeah, I think I, hemispherectomy is a great example. I think I don't think many uh, uh, neurosurgeons that take care of adults primarily or do adult epilepsy surgery for that matter do hemispherectomy. But because of the unique pathology we see in children, particularly congenital infarctions or malformations of cortical development like cortical dysplasia or, or hemimegalencephaly, 
those those present early in life um, uh, and are a significant burden on the developing child, their socialization and their maturation. And for those children to be able to lead a normal life or be able to go to school, and for the teenagers in particular, for them to be able to be independent and drive and go to college, um, they need to have their seizures stopped. So we see that uh, that sort of pathology and it, if we do our job well, it never makes it into adulthood, right? Because we, we stop their epilepsy before it becomes disabling. So as an example of the sort of unique pathology we manage, if you understand the developing brain um, and uh, its stages of development, it provides opportunity to use that knowledge of development and anatomy to effectively and safely do a functional hemispheric disconnection without having to do an old school anatomic hemispherectomy. That isn't necessarily a big part of adult neurosurgery practice. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I enjoy most about being a pediatric neurosurgeon. So how did you come to that? Like, who were your mentors? How did you decide, when you were a resident, right, how did you decide to do a fellowship in peds neurosurgery? Yeah, so we, uh, I trained at the University of Maryland um, with, with America's first black pediatric neurosurgeon, not Ben Carson, but uh, a guy named Walker Robinson. Okay. Walker was a Green Beret, uh, uh, jumped out of helicopters into Vietnam. Um, was an amazing guy, trained uh, at the University of Maryland uh, and did uh, pediatric neurosurgery um, and was an extraordinarily good surgeon. Uh, so I was fortunate to work with, with uh, Walker as a resident uh, and then to go on um, to do fellowship with Fred Epstein in New York City, who was also a bit of a character, um, but an extraordinary pediatric neurosurgeon who uh, championed uh, the, the surgery for brainstem tumors and intramedullary spinal cord tumors. So it was a great, uh, a great exposure to the field. Um, as is true of many of us, I didn't start off wanting to be a neurosurgeon. I, I was going to be, um, I was going to be just about everything else. Uh, and what I really realized I liked was um, congenital malformations. And I was uh, very impressed by the pediatric surgeons as a medical student at the University of Michigan. Um, and those were the guys that developed ECMO. Okay. Uh, and uh, it was essentially applied physiology in the NICU which I thought was tremendously fascinating. Yeah, all, tell, not, not all of our listeners are doctors, right? So ECMO stands for? ECMO stands for extracorporeal, outside the body, membrane oxygenation. So for in, in, in premature babies or babies with diaphragmatic hernia, that was the population that they treated the most. Those are children in whom the diaphragm is deficient and the intestines are in the chest, so the lung doesn't develop properly. They could repair that unless the lung was so compromised that the child didn't survive. So um, uh, the team at the University of Michigan, led by a guy, uh, by a guy named Bartlett, uh, developed a system where they divert blood coming from the heart into this membrane oxygenation device and then return it to the baby. And these are two or three kilo infants um, hooked up to this giant machine that's whirring and, and returning blood to them. And I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. The problem with pediatric surgery is most of what they deal with is not that, it's mostly poop and vomit. Right. So I couldn't imagine doing that on a daily basis to be able to take care of a few kids that need ECMO. So taking my love of pediatric surgery and applying it to my knowledge, uh, my interest in the nervous system, led me to neurosurgery and ultimately pediatric neurosurgery. I had some great mentors as a medical student, a woman named Joan Venice. Oh who, yeah, Joan uh, Venice. Was an extraordinary neurosurgeon yeah. in her own right, but a particularly uh, good pediatric neurosurgeon. She wrote one of the uh, seminal papers on decompressive craniectomy at Yale and then spent the tail end of her career uh, at the University of Michigan. Um, uh, she was a giant in the field of pediatric neurosurgery. And as a medical student, I remember sitting in the audience and her showing a CT scan of a child with massive hydrocephalus as, as they, we did our clinical pathological correlate lecture. And in that lecture, uh, she then went on to show a group of little girls at a birthday party all wearing frilly dresses uh, and said, 
which one is the child with the hydrocephalus? And you couldn't tell. Mm. And the CT scan looked horrible. All CSF and no brain. And you thought, that child's never going to amount to anything. And here's a bunch of five or six-year-olds at a birthday party, and they all look completely normal. I know the residents hate VP shunts, but I always thought the shunt was maybe the most important innovation in neurosurgery in terms of life years, right? Yeah. Saved. Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, you probably change a life in a permanent way with a shunt done well, but you can also create a great deal of misery, which is why most people don't like shunts. So shunts done badly are a terrible thing. Shunts done well are life-changing and life-saving. And you're absolutely right. But um, fortunately, hydrocephalus management has evolved a great deal, and it isn't always just a shunt. We yeah. do fewer and fewer shunts now in pediatric neurosurgery than ever, mostly because we can manage them endoscopically. Yeah, so tell us about that and the relevance to what you're doing in Haiti. Yeah, so, uh, you know, hydrocephalus management is a big part of every pediatric neurosurgeon's practice. You know, hydrocephalus, for those who don't know, and are non-medical, is an accumulation of fluid in the brain. The brain makes a couple quarts of fluid a day. It has to circulate and be reabsorbed. If that doesn't happen, the fluid builds up and it damages the developing brain. So uh, in the 1950s, there was really no effective way to treat it. Um, and uh, an engineer developed a system where you could put in a silastic tube under the skin with a little valve that was under the skin as well. The valve regulated how much fluid was changing, life-changing. That's a shunt. The problem with shunts is they break, they get infected, they malfunction. About two-thirds of shunts will fail within two years of implantation necessitating another operation, right? So um, there was a, a, a pioneer of hydrocephalus uh, treatment, a guy named Ben Worf, uh, who spent a decade uh, committing his life to treating hydrocephalus in Uganda. And Ben realized that, uh, that you, can't, you can't put shunts in and 1,000 Ugandan children every year because he couldn't afford them, and he couldn't find them, and he couldn't take care of them. So uh, he championed the idea of using endoscopic techniques to treat hydrocephalus and avoid placing a shunt and showed that it, it's effective in a large percentage of children. Although many of us have volunteered our time uh, in the developing world, uh, I've worked in Haiti since 2003, treating hydrocephalus there, um, and we've treated over a 1,000 children with hydrocephalus. Wow, there are that many kids with hydrocephalus there are that in many Haiti. kids in, in Haiti with hydrocephalus. Um, okay, that, so how many millions of people are in Haiti? There is a population of about 10 million. Before the earthquake, it was about okay. 12, but now it's about 10 or 11 million So people. one in 10,000 people in Haiti has had you or one of your colleagues or disciples there Correct. putting an endoscope in their brain. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So giant numbers. Giant numbers. That's but, huge. But we've yeah. brought that knowledge uh, to the benefit of uh, children here at home. So we started doing endoscopic procedures that were applied to children who we couldn't get a shunt for to spare children shunts here in the developed world. So in uh, North America and in Europe now, many children are being treated with endoscopic neurosurgery and avoiding shunt placements. And Fewer shunts, happier patients, happier nurses. So I, you know, I remember doing the peds rotation. I remember going into the hospital six times a night to tap a shunt and all these other things about peds, and uh, and I was like, wow, this is this is intolerable. Like I, I mean, I, and then and then the parents, right? The parent, like, like I'm not a very patient person. Everybody knows me knows I'm not very patient, and it just would drive me nuts. So make the pitch for a young uh, resident who's trying to decide on the fence, saying, I I kind of like peds. And I really want to do that. Um, why? What? Tell me why. Yeah. So you know, it's, it, it's, I get asked that a lot because I think the children, the, the, the children we take care of are the reason we're we do pediatric neurosurgery. Um, if you aren't willing to to uh, deal with a sick child and their extended family, it's not for you. But the reason to do it is because the pathology we we treat, mostly congenital, uh, and the opportunity to make a difference in a life that is just beginning is profound. 
I think that's the gratification for me, is that young parents will bring me their sick child and think there is no hope for that child to have a normal life. And we, in pediatric neurosurgery, have the power to change that. And that's really profound. And, I, and you know, that's, uh, that's the best feeling imaginable, to be able to help a young couple with their baby and, and take away the burden of, uh, of the idea that that child won't be normal. Nothing better. So, yeah, shunts are a nuisance, but we do fewer shunts now than we ever did, and we do them better. So come back on our service. I'll teach you how to do it. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't even like to operate on people in their 30s or 40s because I always tell them that the stakes are so high in spine on both sides. It doesn't mean that you can't. If you help them, the stakes are huge. If you, if you don't help them, and it's not that we hurt them per se, but if you don't help them, you're now the, you know, you're, you're the cause of their pain, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I can't imagine what that's like uh, when you're dealing with a five-year-old or something of that sort. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. You know, it's interesting that uh, I, I'm sure if you're dealing with degenerative spine disease, to, to do a, a disc operation on a really young person, particularly that necessitates a fusion or something, gives them a much longer period of potential future complication. Having said that, epilepsy surgery, like the talk I gave this morning, is a great example. We know that if we can stop seizures early in life, children have a much better cognitive and developmental outcome than if we wait years. So I'd much rather operate on that child in the first year or two of life than wait until they're six or eight or 10 and are profoundly disabled. And that window of opportunity to stop the epilepsy and allow the brain to develop normally has been lost. So we deal with a very different set of rules when you work on the developing nervous system. There's this opportunity to affect a change early in life before that window of potential development is lost and closed. So, big difference. Now, you have a hobby, which is sailing, right? It's hard for neurosurgeons to have hobbies. I'm sure most of us uh, struggle to do that, but I'm a wannabe sailor, yeah. I, but that's a popular one. Like, there are, there are a number of very famous neurosurgeons who sail, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. can you draw a parallel there? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I think Ross Bullock did a beautiful job. Uh, he wrote a little editorial a few years ago, I think in World Neurosurgery, Ross Bullock was a, a, a world-renowned uh, neurosurgeon who was part of our department for many years here at the University of Miami. Uh, he specialized in trauma care, uh, but he was a South African who, who built his own sailboat and sailed it across the Atlantic uh, and told a really elegant story of the challenges of managing on your own, using your resources, your physical ability and your intellect to execute a challenge uh, and to do it safely. Now, granted, who's at risk in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on a small boat built by yourself? You. <laughs> in the operating room, it's the child that we're taking care of or the patient. But, you know, I think uh, a lot of us sail, and I'm fortunate to have a lot of good friends who have really nice sailboats. I have a coastal sailboat here in Miami, uh, which we keep at Dinner Key and don't get out often enough. But uh, I think there are some parallels to, to what we do professionally and our personal characteristics that draw us to neurosurgery that make sailing just tremendously enjoyable. Well, John, th that's, those are great thoughts, and I want to close with that and, and also add that, unfortunately, we don't have J.P. Colson with us today, our co-host. He's busy taking trauma call at uh, Cook County as uh, is necessary for our training. But uh, thank you for being on and sharing your thoughts. We have to have you back. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having okay. me.